Hello, welcome to Chatsy Chats. I'm your host, Samuel Davies. In this episode, we speak with John Dunford, CEO of the Developer Society. John has heaps of experience in helping charities to understand digital and finding what technologies could work for them. Given the increasing need charities have to digitally involve, we wanted to pick his brains and find out more about where charities can begin this process. John was very accommodating and allowed me to take the conversation off on a few slight tangents, including understanding more about the co-op structure in which he and his colleagues work. In this time of relentless change, I imagine I'm not alone in thinking about the possibilities of how our work could adapt and evolve, both in terms of technology, but also in governance structures. Speaking with John filled me with hope that technology can go some way to addressing the bleak economic social outlook that many recent reports have pointed to. But as you will hear, it isn't just about the technology. This episode is brought to you by our platinum sponsor, Charity People. So without further ado, here is John Dunford speaking to me about getting digital. I'm delighted to be joined by John Dunford, CEO at the Developer Society. John, welcome to Charity Chats. Well, thanks a million, Sam. Um, it's fantastic to be on. So thanks for having me. You know, at Charity Chat, we've spoken to a few people over the past year or so, and even beyond that, about the growing use of digital to engage with the charity supporters and audiences and how this has been expedited by the current pandemic. What is your background of digital, John, and uh, working with charities specifically? Yeah, um, obviously a really a topic that's really front of mind when we're all living our lives through screens at the moment. My relationship with technology and charity goes back a little bit further. So I was always, um, I've always been into technology, but never, you know, some of the people I work with would have been building computers at home growing up. Right. That was never quite me, but always very sort of digitally literate and interested in what could be done with technology. But I would really say that my passion is on the charity side of things and making change in the world. So I did, um, I did a master's in environmental policy. As part of that, I focused my research on studying how digital campaigning was influencing policy creation. Right. And that was really the start of it for me, the kind of that interaction between how tech could be used to make positive change in the world. And is that things like the kind of the, uh, the, petitions like online petitions and things like that like avas and change.org and things like that yeah absolutely i, I don't uh, i don't want to go too far into it and bore everyone but i what i specifically studied was the efficacy of online petitions for the creation of environmental policy at the european level but essentially that so how digital campaigns or digital comms targeted at decision makers influence them and what impact that has so if we're saying you know three million people sign on to a petition and that's going to Boris Johnson. How does that influence or does that influence thinking of these decision makers? And that was, that was a really interesting area. That was probably about eight or nine years ago at this stage. And there was, it was really kind of like a developing and emerging space. From there, I ended up going on to work at um, a number of different really fantastic charities and NGOs. So I worked at Greenpeace and Oxfam International and then the Syria campaign after that, so supporting civil society groups in Syria, um, most notably probably the White Helmets. And in all of those roles, the, I was doing something 
sort of bridging digital and technology and campaigning and advocacy with, with a, you know, a mix of fundraising and other things thrown in there, but seeing how the tech that we had available could be used to create change. From there, then about four years ago, I ended up joining the team at the Developer Society. And I came on board to be part of a, a project as we were reshaping and reincorporating as a not-for-profit, as a co-op, and making the decision to work exclusively with charities and NGOs. And again, to sort of be that bridge between the two spaces, between the groups we would work with, the partners we have, um, whether that's 38 Degrees or Samaritans or um, Macmillan or any of these fantastic groups who are trying to use technology to make change in the world Mm. with the technologists that we have in-house. And I think a really big motivating factor for me there was the shape of the organization and seeing how we could kind of not only do good, but how we could do it in a better way. I think some of that, the stuff we have in there, being an not-for-profit, being a co-op has been really useful for us with all the turbulence this year. Yeah, I mean, what a year it's been. And I guess we're not through it yet. But as a CEO yourself, I can imagine it's been a particularly difficult year for you and your team kind of leading an organization through a pandemic. I guess there's no rule book, is there? There's no roadmap for how to do it. So how have you evolved your approach over the last year? How, how has the pandemic kind of, how, how have you managed and how have you then rolled with the punches of the pandemic? Yeah, there's definitely no, there's definitely no playbook for what we've been through. I think it's really nice for us that we are a cooperative because we can share that responsibility around throughout the team and we share the successes and we share the losses together. So in a more traditional leadership position, it takes, you know, it takes some of the pressure off you in that sense, because we work. So we work to deliver everything we do. We work with a charity or an NGO partner. We try and provide the tech to sort of facilitate what they're doing and help them create more impact. So because we work through those partners to deliver on our mission of making positive change in the world, that's, it's been really turbulent in that sense because there's been so much chaos in the charity sector this year. Um, I think everywhere has been affected, but the charity sector has definitely been one of the hardest hit. So working with those groups, even down to just the basics of how furlough has worked. So the contacts that we would have, the people that we've built relationships up with on projects would be maybe switching in and out, would be you know one week to the next there or not there. Um, I think also then there's been this huge rush. Um, so I know you've, you've looked at this before, but the charity digital skills gap that exists and that we're kind of all aware of. I think there's been a lot of groups who've been trying to catch up on many, many years of underinvestment um, overnight when the pandemic hit, whether that's, whether that's through digitizing their service, um, general digital transformation, or looking at sort of some of the remote working approaches. But I think it was kind of trying to go from not to 100 overnight for a lot of groups. And obviously when you're, you know, uh, slow is smooth and smooth is fast. And when you're trying to rush something, there's a, there's just extra chaos put into the system. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess the stress of it for charities and, and presumably there's a knock on effect for, for you and your, your team as well. If the, if the, if, you know, for any, any problems the charities are having, then that, that inevitably affects you and you kind of, through this partnership model that you have with them? Yeah, in a sense, we're kind of downstream from the charity sector like that. So if, 
if there are big changes in the charity sector, they'll be disruptive for us. One of the things that I was thinking initially when it happened was, you know, it's so hard to make predictions in any really, uh, really messy context. But I think one of the things we might potentially be seeing overall, one of the big dynamics is that while the kind of the overall pie is going to reduce for the charity sector um, for so many reasons. Um, now, it seems it seems like some of the numbers coming out are showing that individual giving is remaining kind of reasonably consistent and reasonably strong, which is fantastic to see. But even just even in the UK, like with the new FCDO set up, there's so, so many different factors at the moment that are going to potentially reduce funding across the sector. But in tandem with that, maybe we're seeing an increase in investment in digital as well. Now, that could be a temporary thing while people are well, social distancing is place, and maybe we won't see that sustained, but potentially we're seeing a shrinkage in the sector overall, but actually a growth in the tech for good space. So for groups like ourselves who work primarily in tech for good, that might actually balance out and might be reasonably stable. And that's kind of what we've been seeing so far. But again, I think there's such an amount of flux at the moment. And even, even where things are staying stable, there's just that extra concern and stress. And it's just that hard that bit harder to be certain about any future plans. Has your setup changed particularly with your team in terms of, you know, managing the stress of, of the pandemic? Are there things that you guys are now doing that you didn't do in terms of kind of self-care and well-being and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, it's certainly really underlined, obviously, all that. And I think that could be um, that could be one of the positives coming out of this. There's, I think, a really, a really great emphasis across a lot of different sectors on that and on the value of, you know, supporting people to be in the best position they can. Um, yeah, yeah. I think in some ways it's been interesting seeing how little we've had to change in our team because we have this really nice structure in place anyway where we are a co-op where we do a lot of co-decision and we're very, very focused on, um, on our team in the first place. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of flexibility in that structure. And again, as a nonprofit, without that sort of profit incentive, there's no one, there's no one shouting from on top to sort of squeeze, <laughs> you know, capitalism trying to squeeze labor. Where, where's my sense. return or something? Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. So, so the aim for us is always kind of keep the lights on, keep the team happy, deliver well for our partners. And it's not about kind of, yeah, there's no margin on top of that. So I think that's been really nice. We've been able to be really resilient, but obviously I think everyone's been, been affected by this. Everyone in different ways, if whether it's having, you know, personal health issues, loved ones to worry about. Yeah, um, of course. A lot of parents in our team dealing with homeschooling and other yeah, things. Yeah, fun. Yeah. And even for people, like, I would definitely count myself as, on, you know, in the group of kind of the lucky people in this regard. But there's just a general dull background stress. It's kind of, you know, like a little, like, you know, a bit of a, a, bit of a low-level headache constantly. Absolutely. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I definitely feel that. So we've been really fortunate as a team this year overall but i think that's fortunate accepting the pandemic as the base level yeah and I think that's the way i try to try to look at it and it's i guess it's good to put things in perspective isn't it like that I, I've, I've been doing the same thing myself and you know those moments where it kind of all seems a little bit too much or a bit too heavy thinking actually i'm i'm very fortunate again touch wood don't want to jinx it but 
you know, we've uh, we've had a relatively uh, kind of compared to some people an easier. That's uh, that's a, a line I always really struggle to walk myself because I think I'm an inbuilt optimist, and I think that's I get a lot of personal value from that kind of uh, keeping my nearly keeping myself in check through that kind of <laughs> trying to focus on what I'm grateful for. Yeah. But I think also it's you just sometimes you just need a bit of a moan and a bit of a like and to wallow in a bit. Let off some steam. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, how to find that balance because I think it's not helpful either to, you know, when we're talking about dynamics with the team and how we, how we're managing, managing the group together. Mm. It isn't helpful to be relentlessly positive either when things are tough. Sure, sure. Um, so Because I guess it's, one, right? it's empathy, isn't it? It's showing you've got empathy and showing that you've got a, you know, your head's not in the clouds and you're not, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're actually, you're on ground level and you're seeing the, the, the challenges that people are facing. I guess also I feel for me, I don't know if it's the same for you, John, but I feel that being in this sector actually helps me in terms of, you know, when I'm focusing on trying to help, trying to put for, push forward our cause, you know, I work for a charity as well. You know, that's, that's kind of a good, I suppose there's the work aspect, but there's also the work doing good aspect of it as well, which kind of helps to focus my um you know my thoughts on on that kind of positive uh progression you know and uh, and evolution of a situation in, in a positive way yeah completely completely and i'm sure we're kind of preaching to the choir here by the nature of the people who will be listening yeah but absolutely i think having that having a bit of certainty about the why behind everything really really helps and i think that. I think that's borne out in a lot of the, the psychology literature, but also you see that across kind of like spiritual traditions across everything. Ultimately, ultimately kind of one of, you know, the higher level things we're shooting for is to be in service for others. And that's great for personal motivation, personal focus, having a sense of a sense of what you're trying to achieve, particularly in difficult times. And I think that can be sometimes hard in the professionalized charity world because you can feel I've definitely felt this in other positions where you're, you know, that you're contributing as a small cog in part of a big machine towards positive change, but you maybe feel a little bit distant day to day. But I think even still knowing that you're a small part of a big machine that's working towards something you can feel kind of personally proud of in that sense, it's, it's hard to put a, it's hard to put a really concrete value on that, but it's not something I'd be uh, happy letting go of personally. We did a episode a few uh, episodes ago with Helen Molinos about uh, non-hierarchical leadership. Is that is that the kind of model that you currently have um, working at Developer Society? Yeah. So I think um, co-ops are a fantastic shape, but I think each one's a little bit, you know, each one's individual to themselves and there's lots of different flavors. So you can have co-ops that are hierarchical, you can have co-ops that are radically non-hierarchical in the same way that you can have kind of different ownership models and different decision models with them. I think co-ops tend to go hand in hand with a little bit more of a flatter organizational structure, um, but it's not necessarily something that has to be there. So at its, at its simplest, how it functions for us, and I, I, would, I couldn't possibly pretend to be an expert on the, the co-op sector, but um, how it works for us, it means that all the members of the co-op are equal owners of the organization. Um, so if you think of it like a traditional shareholder model, we all have an equal split in those shares. So 
while we do have some degree of, we have a very flat structure and we do a lot of, I think, interesting things around co-decision and um, decision-making processes where anyone in the organization can make any change they want with the, with some sort of safeguards built in there. Um, but there are definitely, we also, we also blend that with some more traditional structural things. So we have a, have a line management system. Um, we have a few things like that. But what it means is the, that the founders who have been in the team since day one and the newest person to walk in the door as soon as they're a member have an equal ownership over the team and an equal right to set the direction. So I think, yeah, it's really, really radical in some senses. I think it's, it's really fantastic for us as an organization because it can really help increase the sense of buy-in for the team. Mm. For people in more traditional leadership shapes in the team, I think it really distributes responsibility. So you don't have that feeling of that weight of pressure on your shoulders that this is all on me because it's all on us together. And I think it's, it's great for us in a sense as well in that we kind of it's a great way of bringing people into the team who are bought into the culture that we have. And I think it goes back to that sort of trying to do good, better way and without going into too, too much sort of mystical thinking. But I think if you get your culture right, if you have your, if you're living your values through your structure, then ultimately you're going to be making better change in the world. So it seems that there are so many applications, John, channels, devices that charities can use to enhance their work, both internally and externally. How does the Developer Society support charities to understand what this technology can do for them and where they should be investing their often limited resources into digital? Yeah, I think this is this is a huge question. Um, I think from our own experience, there's a really... It's something I've only realized in the last couple of years, and it really helps kind of keep my focus on what we're doing. So when we started out as an organization trying to support charities, I think what, what we thought our real uh, USP was, was the, the tech, the tech expertise. So again, going back to that digital skills gap in charities, we thought, right, we'll be able to bring cutting edge technology into these organizations and we'll be the tech experts. So in that time then, so in the, in the past few years, we've worked with hundreds of charities and not-for-profits and built up this huge amount of experience of working with them. And now when I talk to, I talk to new groups about projects, what I find myself really emphasizing is like, we have the experience of helping you manage yourself through this process. And ultimately it's not about, because it might sound strange because I'm often a little bit skeptical myself about technology for its own sake and kind of, cutting edge new technology. And I don't think it's about in the third sector, I don't think our role is really to break new ground regarding technology. I think we can leave that to people with tons of VC funding who can burn through that and make expensive mistakes, um, yeah. you know, so with soft bank funding or whatever they're doing. But I think in our, our case, it's about trying to smartly apply proven solutions to tackle existing problems. But ultimately that goes back to needing to know what you're trying to achieve and i think which ties back to kind of the what we've learned at the developer society that that's really the biggest part of this the technology is important and you know which system you choose or what tech stack you put in place but ultimately you can have the best technology in the world and if you aren't clear on 
how you're going to use that to deliver on your mission of change, then you're just, just wasting your time and your resources. Um, so I think that's, that's kind of ultimately going back to, to the question of knowing what should charities do with limited resources. Mm. I think there has, to, there has to be a unique answer for that charity to charity because it depends on what you are trying to achieve. And knowing how, how you're delivering on your mission and then trying to look at technology sort of as a tool to facilitate that. So not being led by the technology, not being led by, I feel like 12, 18 months ago, we had a lot of people coming to us saying like, blockchain, I want to do blockchain. I don't know what that is. And it's it's always about flipping that conversation about like, what are you trying to achieve? And then let's see what the tool we can match that up with is. I think that's where charities have to start. I mean, that's such a good point. I think that's such a good general point too, because I know from for my experience working in fundraising, you know, there are so many times where somebody will come to you and say, you should try this. It might not even be digital. It might be, you know, a, a new fundraising idea. And, and I guess without a really clear guide, maybe a clear strategy, an organizational strategy, then it's too easy to potentially start going off on, on random tangents, trying things out in the hope that it'll work for you rather than driving that yourself. Yeah, and I think fundraising is a really interesting area to think of in terms of the charity sector because it's, I was going to say it's easier to measure. Perhaps it is because the numbers are really obvious, but perhaps that's because we're quite bad at measuring impact in other areas as well. So the the contrast seems starker. Mm. But I think you can make decisions about where to invest resources because you can ultimately really clearly measure, is this increasing what we're doing? And you can break it down in terms of proxies. And I think that's a really good way to approach technological decisions. So, you know, should we be investing more in building up our social media presence? Should we be trying to get a wider audience on Instagram um, to support our fundraising work? So that's, that's maybe a theory you want to pursue. And I think, you know, you can make a really strong case for that. But ultimately, you can set up a test put a bit of investment in Instagram and see if it's having an impact on your fundraising numbers and see, sort of try and follow through on that experiment and see if it's having an impact. And if it is, invest more. If it's not, step away from it. Now, I think that's obviously, like we're saying, a little bit easier when you're measuring in pounds and pence and the outcomes. But we need to have some sort of similar system in terms of other impact you're doing. So if you're trying to deliver a digitized service for people, pandemic you have to have some way of measuring or assessing that and then you're trying to put in place steps to get you get you a little bit closer and that makes it a lot easier to assess what tech you should be using what decisions you're making but i think again that goes back to starting with why are you doing this and what are you trying to achieve i think too often it's easy to start on the other side of things so starting out with we need to be doing we need to be doing instagram what will we get out of it as opposed to what, what do we need to achieve and is this the right tool to get us there? And is there any, you, I mean, in your work, are you seeing any kind of shared wisdom on the things that definitely would work for charities and the thing that definitely wouldn't work for charities? Or is, is, is it, you know, as, as I'm kind of taking from what you're saying that, really it's you know charity a might have 
amazing success with one thing that Charity B would never would. And it's are there any trends or benchmarks or anything like that that you've seen that charities can use? Yeah, so I think there are a lot of there are a lot of similar and overlapping overlapping things that charities, particularly like charities doing similar kinds of work, are trying to trying to achieve. I think because the topic is so broad, if we're talking about digital or technology, there's so many different so many different things that people can be reaching for. I think I think there's definitely a trend towards looking at what you can use off the shelf. So instead of building or creating something from scratch, is there an existing service out there that we can use? Um, at least try and pilot something. And then you might decide you need your custom version of it down the line, but starting out with something that already exists. So that sort of reuse mentality, I think that's a great way of thinking and really positive for all charities. But I would say also that um, rather than looking at sort of specific general rules or best practices, what I find myself saying a lot of the time is look at people who are in your space and doing what you want to do and doing it well already. So I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a huge trade secret to say an organization like MSF, they are predominantly funded by individual giving. That's because of they've, they've made a decision about their organizational independence and I think a really laudable one. And that's, that's kind of at the core of what they do. But so it doesn't take a huge amount of thinking to work back and say they're a really a large successful organization, largely driven by individual giving. So they're going to be putting a huge emphasis into researching, researching this area, into investing in it, into improving it. So what are they doing? And looking to learn from them. And learning from, learning from other groups is, I think, kind of the number one way, the quickest, the best shortcut I could recommend to anyone trying to kind of level up quite quickly is if you're trying to improve your individual giving, look at who's doing it well. And sort of, you know, you don't want to copy directly but you can definitely borrow and you can definitely learn and take inspiration from these groups and if you want to see something like um you know how msf are taking people on a journey from social to individual giving well follow msf you know go on and check their pages see what sort of content they're putting out there if you want to see the donor journey that you're that they're taking people on to try and get someone from a small one-off donation through to growing commitment, growing engagement over time, make a small donation yourself because you're going to go on that journey. You're going to be on their email list. You're going to get their comms. You're going to see how they approach it. And I think there's a ton of things we can do. So rather than having generic, you know, like a 10 commandments or best practice rules, looking at who's adapted to achieving the things you want to achieve and then trying to learn from them. And obviously you can do so outside of the charity space as well. There's fantastic stuff being done in the commercial sector, um, there's a lot of great digital work being done by governments, but if you're looking for cases that are as similar to your needs as possible, you can probably find someone in the in the third sector who's at a bigger scale or maybe achieving this at a better level than you currently are, and sort of see what you can learn from them. I'd, I'd consider myself a generalist, both in my work life and in my personal life. I, I'm a jack of all trades, master of none. And uh, that's no secret to anyone that knows me. But when I speak to friends or colleagues with more in-depth knowledge about digital and technology, 
despite my willingness to try and learn this, you know, this new area, this growing area of digital, I find myself very quickly out of my depth. Is this typical of the charities you're working with? And what advice would you give to charities seeking to build up their digital knowledge, expertise and language and understanding of digital? I think being a generalist, I can relate to that, is um, maybe a good route to having a, you know, a well-rounded, nicely lived life. So I, I can, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think in terms of technology and particularly in the charity sector, it can be a really tricky and intimidating area. Like the jargon can be so heavy and it can feel like the barriers to entry are very high. And I also think there's this sort of strange sense of, of guilt or shame that people have around not being experts. So you can kind of come in and frame this question with a, with a lot of confidence and sort of, and, and openly say where you feel like uh, you could maybe stand to learn a bit more. But I feel like a lot of people, maybe particularly in senior leadership where you're meant to have the answers, can feel like they're, they're not able to do that. And then there's a bit of bluster or ego involved and, um, yeah, so it can be really, I can really relate to that. I think, I think the way to tackle this is going back to seeing we're not trying to solve for tech or digital problems here. We're trying to solve for how does technology or how do digital means help you deliver on your mission. And that's what it always has to be. Tech can only ever be a part of the picture in the charity space. Um, it really has to be technology for something, mm. you know, for change, for fundraising, for a purpose. And I think that's the other side of the coin that charities are absolutely experts on, knowing what this needs to deliver. Um, and I think that's the side to sort of double down on. So really, really for me, it, it comes back to approaching this with an outcomes, not output mindset. So it's about what you're trying to get, not what you're trying to build to get you there. But it's really easy to get those two confused or even get them in the wrong order and kind of focus on the what's the tech we're going to build and then what's it going to do sure. or someone else is doing this shiny thing. We need to do that as well. So I think if I was giving anyone a little bit of guidance on how to maybe catch up if they're feeling a bit behind in this space, I'd say try to demystify it for yourself. So try not to get sucked into the jargon or thinking this is a particularly this is a unique problem to solve, unlike anything else. I'd say try and think of it in general terms. And I think this is something that a lot of people in the charity sector really have fantastic skills in general problem solving. So if you can apply that to the tech, you're already off to a great start. So how would you go about solving this problem in a general sense? If your washing machine breaks down and you're like me and you have absolutely no clue about what happens inside a washing machine and how that works, how are you going to go about fixing that? So there, you know, you can start to take it apart and start to mess with it yourself and end up with a flooded house or a flooded apartment and an expensive piece of kit that you've broken. Or you can start by maybe reaching out and getting someone in who knows what they're doing. You need to be able to tell them what you want to achieve. Because if you call someone in, do they, are they there to sell you a new washing machine as an upgrade? Do you need to say there's a rattle in the back and I need that fixed. Sure. You need to be able to give a bit of direction there, but then you need to work with someone else who has the specific expertise to help you complete that. And you can then assess afterwards. So if there's a rattle in a certain part of the washing machine, they do their work on it. Afterwards, you know 
if they've delivered good work or not. So trying to think in sort of general metaphorical terms, I think is, is a really helpful way to start out with, with figuring out what you need to do in terms of your tech. Constantly going back to what are you trying to achieve and then looking at who you can get on board to help you do that and how you go about assessing them as well. So again, I think, you know, with the met metaphor of getting someone in to help repair your washing machine, how would you, how would you go about deciding who's the right person to do? Are you going to pick someone at random? Are you going to ask a friend? Are you going to speak to someone else and get a recommendation? Are you going to look for some references? Are you going to speak to a couple of different uh, repair people and get several quotes and compare them and ask a few follow-up questions? And I think that's sort of really sort of quite simple and basic thinking that people often don't do when it comes to technology. I think because they're a bit baffled because there's this sense of this is too complex to know and people get kind of can get led by the nose a little bit. And is that a bit of a warning sign as well? If, if you're talking to potential uh, suppliers or, or, or experts that is the onus on them to really make it as simple when they're explaining it as possible rather than in some, you know, I suppose the risk is that there, there might be people out there who are deliberately bamboozling people by using the big hefty words and terms that, you know, abbreviations that people don't understand. I, I would take that as a little bit of a red flag right away. So if you're coming into a conversation with someone um, and they're tr throwing a lot of jargon or, you know, they're, they're, they're seemingly bamboozling you, I think I would definitely, I would definitely take that as, as something to pause on, but I think you have to see what you've come into that with as well. Mm -hmm. So have you found the right people? Have you found the right partner for you or have you given them the right direction? Sure. So I think if you're coming into that conversation and telling someone, this is what I need to achieve, but I don't have a lot of technical expertise and I need you to help guide me in that. And then if they're pitching the conversation at the wrong level, I would definitely see that as a red flag. But if you're going in kind of cold and they're giving you a technical, technical introduction to it and you haven't given them the level you need that pitched at as well, then I would say that's partly on you because you sure. haven't framed the situation in the right way. So I think ultimately, again, that goes back to getting the right fit and finding and there's loads of people out there with fantastic technical skills. But I think the thing that you can really assess for whether you know tech or not is the chemistry of that relationship. And that's going to carry you through in a lot of cases. If you find someone who you can, who you can trust, who you have a good working relationship with, who like you're saying, Sam, can communicate to you on a level you need that, you need things explained that, which mm -hmm. might be kind of quite simple in technical terms. It might be quite complicated. It depends on where you're at. But are they matching where you're, you are? If you get that fit of relationship, then going back again to doing, doing good in a better way, that's just gonna, that's gonna get you to the results you need to get. I guess we, we've kind of covered this to an extent, John, but it, it strikes me that while so many charities are facing the resource challenges caused by the pandemic and underfunding, there's also an urgency to explore new ways, as we've said, of doing things. How can charities make the most efficient use of their resource and budget to develop their digital offering and impact for those that they serve? I think it's about breaking down, again, what you're trying to achieve. And then you can make those smart investments or smart bets behind them. So say if you're 
working in campaigns and advocacy department at WWF. Ultimately, you want to be linking back everything, every decision you make digitally, every investment, whether that's time or cash budget, and directly back to your strategy and what you're trying to what you're trying to achieve. So you might be working at a top of the top line to kind of improve environmental and wildlife protection. But within your campaigns, then you might be trying to mobilize people to contact specific decision makers on a regular basis. Like you want people to be getting in touch with their MPs. So then, then maybe you know that constituency contacts are much more valuable than generic messages. So your local MP is going to be a lot more interested in 100 messages from people who might potentially vote for them rather than a million messages from people across Europe or across the world who have no direct impact on their job. So then you know that you're in the market for some kind of tool or some kind of system that's going to um, help you connect up supporters in their local area. It needs to be in some way geolocated to their representatives. But already, without really any technical input at all, you're already operating in a much smaller surface area of decisions that you need to make. Um, and I think it's about doing that. I think it's about being smart and breaking down what you're trying to do. And then it's much easier to make decisions about where you're allocating resources there. There's a, there should be a huge emphasis on, um, on people in charities to become more digitally literate. And that's not saying that everyone needs to become a digital expert, but I think it's becoming more confident operating in this space is, it's just a requirement and frankly, like a responsibility for doing work in a responsible, impactful way. Um, because digital technology are just so fundamentally intertwined with everything we do in society. And it's only heading in one direction. You know, if we look back in 2025 or 2030, it's not that there's going to be any less of an emphasis on technology or digital in our lives. So you really don't need to know how everything works at a really granular level. But if you're directing work and budget, you should be able to spot opportunities and gaps. And I think that's where it comes back to, to digital literacy. An example that really, like, this keeps me awake at night whenever I think about it. So I try not, I'll bring it up now. Um, <laughs> and you'll know I'll have a bad night's sleep because of it. But I, I've worked, I've worked with a team in the past where nearly an entire full-time position in the campaigns team was spent repeatedly transferring data between spreadsheets. So moving between systems. And this was what yeah. a person did with nearly their full amount of time. Yeah. Now the outcome was necessary. The data needed to get from point A to point B. So what that person was doing had to be done. But that's a task that can largely be automated. Sure. Um, and that's not automation in a way that says, okay, we can cut a person from our budget. There should be automation in a sense where we can say, if we can do something here to free that person up, mm. what else could they be doing with their time? What change could they be creating? So I don't think it's on everyone to know, you know, the specific scripts you would write or the integrations you might, um, might use in that case to transfer that data. But it's on, it's on all of us. And I think particularly people in leadership to be able to spot that there's an opportunity there and that mm. there's something that could be done. And then how do you go about getting the answer? How do you go about engaging with someone who's going to tell you how this takes 35 hours a week, but with 10 hours of a developer's time once off, we can save all of that time into the future and free that person up. 
getting a bit more digitally literate can also be really quite enjoyable. It doesn't mean having to and read or engage with a lot of content that you don't find enjoyable. You know, you've had people on this podcast before, like fantastic Zoe Amar, like listening to Zoe, listening, reading stuff that she put, puts out, that's enjoyable. That's a good way to spend time when you're taking a coffee break and you're going to be, you're going to be kind of taking in some of that digital knowledge. But there's so many great people out there writing and talking about this. I think one, one thing I was reading in the last week or two was there was an article in The New Yorker by Casey Newton about Substack. I found that really interesting because it was speaking about kind of the investment world and business models about kind of tech and Silicon Valley. And that's something that I just find interesting to read about. It's brilliantly written. It's in The New Yorker. It's really engaging insight. But it's also giving you some flavor of the dynamics that are happening in the commercial space around newsletters and how audiences are being reached and some of the decisions that are being made there between different platforms. So while that's maybe not directly related in the same way that a report written for the third sector about newsletter adoption rates is, it's going to be a lot more enjoyable to read probably, and you're still going to be taking in some of the key concepts. So looking for kind of simple routes in like that. It's not going to feel like homework. It's going to feel like something enjoyable and kind of immersing yourself a bit more in the tech discussion. I think even something small like that is a great first step for people who are kind of struggling to get engaged. I hope it's a language that our sector understands this notion of looking to the future, because I guess that's what a lot of our causes are doing, aren't they? They're, they're looking towards a, maybe a, a more utopian future, or a future that's fairer, more equality. And with that, you know, it makes sense that maybe we're, we've got that muscle memory of looking at opportunities now that will help us to get there. Yeah. And I think that's like, that's the mindset. It's, some people are drawn to technology. I work, I work with a lot of them who spend their days coding and go home and to relax in the evening, they code. Feels very alien to me. <laughs> um, but there are some people who have, you know, this is just their passion. For a lot of other people, it's not. But it's such a fundamental part of how our society is built. And like you say, it's, it's underlying everything we do. So if you're really serious about making change for the people you want to serve and support or the cause that you get up in the morning to try and try and service, then this is, this is a really crucial way of doing it. And I think maybe reframing us in that sense, this is an unavoidable how of delivering on the thing that you really care about is maybe a way of kind of increasing that motivation for, for learning a bit more about about the world of tech and, and again, ultimately how it can just make you more effective. And John, final question for you. How, how can people, if they've got questions for you or they'd like to get in touch with the developer society, can they do that? Can they just go onto the website and contact you through that website and the kind of services that you guys could offer charities, are they, that's all kind of on, on the website as well, is it? Yeah, it is. So we work, we work with charities and not-for-profits of all sizes and scales, right from the, the big national groups, whether it's Samaritans or Macmillan or 
Oxfam International or choose of right down to small groups having a lot of impact in their local communities. And we can do, essentially we're there to help address that digital skills gap. So anything you might need hard skills for on the technical side of things, whether it's design, creating infographics, um, running a discovery process to do some of this strategy around tech or building out sites or donation technology or really the really complicated nerdy data and API stuff. That's what we exist to do with charities and NGOs. And absolutely, if anyone, if anyone's listening and they've heard kind of heard something that's sounded interesting, or they even just like a little bit of, you know, a little bit of input on the specific problems they're, they're having, I'd really encourage them to go onto our site, which is dev.ngo, so dev.ngo, and just get in touch. And we'll, I always, always say to people, if, if we can't help you, we'll definitely know someone who can. Um, so hopefully we'll be able to signpost to you in the right direction. John Dunford, thank you for contributing to Charity Chats. Thanks a million, Sam. It's been a, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you to John Dunford there for sharing his knowledge and expertise with us at Charity Chat. The Charity Digital Skills Cap does exist, and I'd imagine we can all see that on both the macro level of our charities held up against our consumer experiences of the commercial sector, but also in the microcosm of how we and our colleagues consider technology and the disparity in our willingness to embrace it and usage of it. Rather than a distracting, irritant or box-ticking exercise, we need to look at technology in terms of how it's going to help us achieve our organisational objectives. John talked about the types of questions that charities can start asking themselves to determine how they bring in digital to support their work and be led by what they are trying to achieve, and approaching this with an outcomes rather than an outputs agenda. Our decisions need to be guided by what we're trying to get, not what we're trying to build to get us there. The aim of those companies and individuals who offer advice about digital should be to help demystify things for charities, and we should all let informed decisions, uh, rather than fear, guide us in how we scale up our use of digital. For those in doubt, contact the Developers Society or another group with proven experience, but before you do, make sure you're clear on what you want to achieve. This is a strategic decision-making process. Of course, automation and the redundancy of certain types of jobs is a social concern that many of us may have. But perhaps John is right, and digital could help us to free up resource to give charities more chance to do better things and more for society and focus on the higher level role of being in service to others. Times are tough and are likely to get tougher, but we're here and we've tools available to help us in this tough climb. Digital certainty isn't a magic bullet, and there seems to be plenty of pitfalls, but this seems always to be the case with any step change. I'm sure the advancement of the computer age caused many similar concerns, doubts, and missteps 30 years ago. The world is moving, and so must we. The charity sector must keep up or fall and be trampled, the good news is that by demonstrating our value through the impact of our work, we can find help along the way. Charity Chat will be there with you through the difficult times ahead. So thank you, dear listener, for getting this far this. We hope you enjoyed this episode and continue to enjoy the podcast. We'd love to hear from you either way. 
It's just left for me to thank our corporate sponsors, our platinum sponsor, Charity People, for enabling us to share these insights, expertise and best practice across our sector. Giant Squid Audio Lab for sponsoring our podcast. Kit Magda Axmit for the beautiful website design. Check it out at charitychat.org.uk. You can also get in touch with us through that website. Forrester Fools for playing throughout the show and for playing us out right now. That's it from me. Keep on doing what you can. Cheerio. Bye-bye.